Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I don't think we should fund the construction of new coal-fired power plants um, for two reasons. Firstly, my view is, is that government should not be in the business of, of doing something where the market's not prepared to do it itself. Then the second thing is, is obviously, how does it fit in with a transition to a carbon neutral economy? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and the show is Australian Politics Live. And uh, across from me in the pod cave is Trent Zimmerman. Say hi, Trent. Hi. Thanks for having me on my first podcast. I (laughs) thought you were going to say Trent Zimmerman, Federal Member for North Sydney. That's who I am, by the way. (laughs) That is true. Yes, yes. Trent Zimmerman is the Federal Member for North Sydney. I should give the full title. And it's true. Uh, Trent has told me that this is his first ever podcast, so I'm kind of semi-honoured. Well, I'm full of nervous anticipation. No, you're not. It'll be lovely. Anyway, um, I want to start our conversation this week uh, just with uh, just giving you a bit of background because you're not a big podcast listener. Um, After the election last year, a couple of months after the election, I invited Keith Pitt, who is a Queensland national, into the podcast with me to describe what happened on the ground in Queensland during the election. And by what I mean what happened, um, uh, I suppose the appeal that Nats uh, were making uh, to a traditional Labor Party constituency and coal was coal was the issue. Anyway, he said some quite interesting things. But it occurs to me, and this is part of why I want to have this conversation with you, is that I have not had a conversation with someone from Another part of the coalition, Heartland, where equally interesting things happened Mm. during the election campaign. So I want to start there, even though it feels to you and I like ancient history. It feels like, (laughs) uh, well, I mean, seriously. It's only seven, eight months ago. No, I know. But like, I feel like I've lived nine lives and I'm sure you do too, right? But but I think it's worth starting there Mm. and talking about an alternate experience during that campaign. So... Pitt's narration was, you know, the the being sort of, you know, um, all for coal really helped us, uh, got us blue-collar votes. I mean, it's not that crude, but I'm summarising. Uh, but obviously you represent a very metropolitan electorate um, with pretty progressive constituents. So what was your experience? Well, I think um, election campaigns are interesting because you're dealing with, in your own electorate, 110,000 individuals, and they do have a a shopping basket of issues. Um, I would say that uh, economic policy probably was the dominant issue, and there were other issues that were not unrelated, like franking credits, um, Mm. which were was sure. very much alive for seniors. Uh, uh, but it's also fair to say, uh, and I'd be um, 
downplaying it, I didn't, that climate change was certainly a big issue in my electorate as well. And what did people say to you? Uh, they want Australia to take climate change uh, seriously. They want the government to take it seriously and uh, um, most would uh, like us to do more. Mm. Uh, and uh, do you think that that experience was replicated in other electorates, other metropolitan electorates that are similar to yours? I do. Um, and I should qualify to start by saying that it's obviously, in my view, uh, a, a probably a majority view amongst my constituents, but it's not the only view. You do have people who take a, a different course of action, a different course of uh, thinking on climate change. Uh, and one of the things that strikes me actually about campaigning is is that we do tend to, um, maybe more than we used to, live in a little bubble of, uh, to use that word, little bubble of, 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 of people who tend to share our own values. Yeah, uh, sure. So it comes as quite a shock to people who don't believe in climate change when I tell them I think a majority of my electorate probably do. So, right. Or vice versa. So, that yeah, well, 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 that's a whole other conversation. It is. About people with different views not mm. bothering to speak to one another. But anyway, okay, so the prevailing, the majority view in your electorate is in favour of climate action. Correct. You think it's similar in other electra, uh, electorates that are, that are similar to yours. Uh, certainly talking to mm. some of your colleagues in similar electorates, that's the impression I get. And then we have what happened in Warringah. Yeah. So what happened in Warringah? Uh, well, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, that is what the record shows. Yeah, yes. but look, I, I think, again, obviously there were a range of issues that were at play there, but uh, from my perspective, climate change uh, was, if not the, the top issue, was certainly in the top three. And uh, uh, and I think that um, uh, Tony Abbott was obviously vulnerable on that issue and that was reflected in the outcome. Mm. And... and, uh, and and so I suppose the lived experience of that is that the Liberal Party has lost a seat in on climate change. I mean, I, you and I, I would would be in firm agreement yes. that uh, that the the Tony Abbott case study is complicated by you know he's a very high profile figure. People have very strong views about high profile figures, right? It's not all climate. You and I know, both know that, but you think it was significant. It certainly looked significant from the outside. I think if you looked at policy issues, it was the most significant policy issue. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's quite interesting and obviously very different to Keith Pitt's experience. Now, um, okay, so your constituents think the government needs to do more in relation to climate change. What do you think? Well, <laughs> yes, I do think that we need to um, to do some more. Um, and that's not to say I don't think we're doing a lot already. And I think that's often under undervalued and underrated. And uh, and I agree with the Prime Minister's premise that uh, technology is going to be our salvation, uh, to put it in religious terms. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, and, and and frankly, I get quite excited about that. I'm so, someone who's very interested in, in Australia's role in innovation and technology. And uh, I personally think that one of the changes that we need to make, at least in language, um, but also in what we're trying to achieve economically, is, is that I actually think that Australia can be a powerhouse for low emissions technology. Uh, we've got a history, really a whole um, solar panels on your rooftop homes um, being commercially available as the result of work at UNSW. So... Mm. Uh, and there's so many exciting opportunities that Australia has uh, in really developing its role in low emissions technology. And do you think that the that there is a potential pivot point if we're talking about the government doing more uh, with commitments in the international framework out to 2050? 
Now, a number of Australian state governments have adopted net zero mm. by 2050. Mm. Uh, is that Does that milestone present the government with an opportunity to step up, do a bit more, be a b- bit more ambitious? Uh, I'm keen for us to look at doing a 2050 target. Um, the PM's said that we are looking at it and uh, we're doing our due diligence. I don't think that's unreasonable because uh, one of the things I do know about politics is it's very easy to uh, to proclaim a target, a, a goal, uh, but unless you've got the plan to back it up, unless you understand how you're going to get there, it can be um, not much more than a political platitude. So, mm, sure. so I think it is important we do the due diligence, but it does make sense to me in many ways, not least of which because, and a lot of people don't realise this, but as part of our Paris Agreement targets, uh, we have agreed uh, to basically move to a net carbon neutrality. Yes. Um, I always stumble over those words. Yeah. Carbon neutrality um, but by the second or in the second half of the century. Well, I was century. going to put this to you because Simon Birmingham just, well, I, I said I think somewhere on social media this week, thank God Burmo's read the Paris Agreement, like someone actually understands what you've signed up to. You have actually signed up to this. Well, the other component of Paris is obviously the commitment that we made. Every nation has signed up to it to, um, to meet the target of uh, temperature rises um, mm. not more than 1.5 to 2%, depending on uh, which parameters you're using. No, exactly, and and that requires net zero. So, uh, but do you think this, that this will be contentious within the government, even if it is, even if <laughs> it's sort of, I don't know why I laugh, but I mean, even if, uh, look, you, you've, you've already done it, you and I kind of agree, you've already done it by signing up to Paris, mm. but there, there is a process obviously within government to establish what mm. what the target is, what the roadmap for getting there is, do, do presumably some modelling of costings, all of this sort of stuff, right? right. So all of that's got to happen. Um, uh, but this will be quite contentious though it internally. Will. It will. And, and your discussion with Keith Pitt uh, is an indicator of why because uh, one of the things I do understand is is that uh, views do change uh, depending on what part of the country you're in and um, I have colleagues who I speak to in good faith and genuinely who will tell me that in their electorates uh, climate change wouldn't be in the top um, 10 issues that are being raised with them by their voters. Uh, in mine it's not the, not the mm. case but, uh, but uh, and that's Talking frankly amongst us uh, to each other, yeah, so mm. um, so you do get those different perspectives being represented in our party room. And uh, as you know, energy policy within the coalition party room has not been always the easiest oh, of tasks. Well, well, that's a very diplomatic way of summarising the last ten years. As you brought up the war, um, <laughs> I, me... I knew as soon as I said that no, I was making a mistake. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, no. Um, do you? Well, uh, what's happened over the last 10 years is that climate change has been weaponised in the Australian political debate. It's become an artefact of partisan politics. Now, um, you know, I won't surprise you, Trent, to hear me say to you, your side of politics has played a more destructive role in this than other actors in the political system, although you're not alone in, in destruction and mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes here. But... The person who chose to weaponise this issue was Tony Abbott. He weaponised this issue. Now, was that a mistake? Uh, well, I wasn't in the parliament at the time. I'm, I'm trying not to, blaming I'm trying to, I'm you. I'm trying to find ways to get out of answering this. Um, no, I'm, um, I'm not blaming you. No, no, yeah, but this is no, an honest. No, this is an honest question. Yeah. Was this a mistake? I think. It, I think it was. An, <laughs> It's such a big mistake, I struggle to find the words yeah. to articulate it. What do you think? Um, look, I, I think that we lost um, 
we lost a good half a decade um, because of uh, the debate about what we needed to do. Um, now, I accept that there are different ways of skinning the cat. Um, I, I think that you can actually reach these targets without having a carbon price. Uh, and so, therefore, I don't think that's an unreasonable proposition to, to put. And I actually thought Greg Hunt was a very good Minister for the Environment and Energy. Um, and in terms of those parameters of what he was seeking to achieve in the early days of, of the Abbott government. Um, but... Uh, do I think that this should be the central point of the political contest? The answer to that is no. Um, uh, I think the challenge of climate change is is so real and so serious that um, if if there is some type of consensus, then that would be a positive positive outcome. Um, am I optimistic that that will occur? Um, probably not, but uh, but it's worth trying. Um, what that being said, just, just, I mean, people just, like consensus, but part of our democracy is obviously not being afraid to have the debate. Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm not opposed to conflict. I've, like conflict is politics, and conflict is representative mm. democracy. But it's whether it's conflict with a view to trying to mm. synthesise something, trying to get to an outcome, or whether it's constant. Whether you weaponise something because mm. it's politically advantageous for you to do it. Yeah. So you said you, you think you can uh, get to a more ambitious target without carbon pricing, Correct. right, like some other options. So what are the options? What, what? Well, interestingly, uh, Alan Finkel spoke to the uh, National Press Club uh, recently and I thought he laid, laid out a very good roadmap and he talked about the technology agenda. He said that uh, technology is the way that we fuel our transition, an orderly transition, I think was the word he used. And so, for example, in the agenda that he laid out, it's it's obviously a transition that occurs towards uh, renewable power, recognises that gas will play a role as a transitional fuel, um, but he also identifies the potential, uh, and it's a bit of a crusade for him, of, totally. of, of hydrogen. He's massively um, into it. But if you, if you, and I have enormous respect for Professor Finkel, I think mm. he's one of the greatest thinkers we have in the country, uh, but if you look at, at the potential of hydrogen, Hydrogen, as he outlines, it is it is so significant, and uh, and not just for fueling our own needs, but also as a major export industry. He points to the fact I think by twenty fifty, it'll be a two trillion dollar uh, industry at the predicted growth rate of hydrogen. So, so it's a matter of um, of governments supporting the development of new industries, or, or how do you how do you get there without? Like, let's look at the New South Wales mm. agreement, which I'm sure you followed very closely, yeah. right? The the bilateral agreement between Scott Morrison and Gladys yeah. Berejiklian. Uh, which we want to replicate around the country. Around the country, right. So that's another model for uh, rolling out uh, abatement mm. without necessarily putting it up in lights that that's what you're doing, mm. right? Um, so... So is that is that it? Is that what we've got now? I mean, I'm not I'm not sort of having a you know massive nostalgia kind no, of trip no. for 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 market mechanisms. Yeah. But do you think that's do you think there is? I think I think there are the parameters run. that we're working within. And look, getting to 2050 and to um, carbon neutrality is 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 not easy. It's not a walk in the park no. by any stretch. No. Uh, but um, the other the other. Uh, policy prescription that I read over Christmas was Ross Garneau's book, Superpower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about that book is that Ross Garneau basically said, look, you've got a government that was elected with certain election commitments that set the parameters. Uh, those election commitments, even though it would be his preference for carbon pricing or, or an ETS, uh, are not going to happen and the world just needs to get used to that because yeah. uh, that's um, the government doesn't have a mandate to do 
um, to change that. Um, and then he outlined what I thought was some of the exciting opportunities that we have. Now, he obviously talked about the central role of technology um, in, in dealing uh, with the challenge and, and really, I think, spoke so optimistically about about how we can actually make the silver lining a reality. Uh, but secondly, he obviously identified other things that government can do. So, and, and some of this we're already starting to do. So, for example, if you look at the renewable sector at the moment, um, which has taken off our own projection, say, 50% renewable by 2030 and um, uh, across Australia, um, but how do you help facilitate that to 2030 and beyond? There are things we obviously need to do. We need to firm the renewables, and that can be done um, with things like gas or, or hydro or batteries. Um, but also, really, I think, and and this type of stuff is never sexy because you're not seeing it or observing it, uh, but really getting the transmission network right is, I think, the most important thing. Well, it's critically important. That's like, in my mind, that's the most important bit of the New South Wales deal because yeah. that basically elect, well, allows a, a substantial renewable energy zone to feed power into the grid. Well, there are two There are two aspects of it. I mean, the proposal that Matt Keane has been pursuing is to establish, in a part in the first case, these, the, these regional um, renewable energy zones and by concentrating them what that allows you to do is obviously more easily connect them to the to the grid uh, but beyond that I think that um, we, we will have to increase our transmission capacity to other areas as well uh, because by its nature renewable energy tends to be um, uh, more geographically spread than a single uh, coal-fired power station so, so getting the transmission network right, I think, is the most um, important challenge. But, um, but the other things I'm excited about is, for example, this year we we are uh, finalising electric vehicle strategy. It's it's something I've had a long interest in. Uh, a long time ago, I used to be a, a North Sydney councillor. Um, Fifteen years ago, I think it was proposing that in our building codes we should be requiring buildings to have um, at points. least the conduits for yep. electricity for the future of electric vehicles. And at the time, I was considered a little bit of a novelty and pursuing that. Um, but that's of itself going to be require major planning because uh, uh, obviously if you roll out electric vehicles in any significant scale, uh, you have to make sure that your grid can cope with people um, charging it. You're going to try and obviously ensure that it's being powered by green energy uh, and, not, uh, and not traditional fuel sources. Um, and you obviously need the network of, uh, of recharging stations as well. You've raised electric vehicles. Uh, the coalition in the recent election campaign uh, took Labor's strategy on electric vehicles and declared that this was a war on the weekend. So how is the coalition, and this is sort of goes to the broader point about repositioning, right? Like you think the, the coalition needs to reposition. I agree. We, 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 we desperately need you to do that. Um, but it is very, it's a very complicated exercise to align some of past statements with future intentions. So how do you go about doing that? Well, I think there is a, different in, a difference in approach and in debate, which is most effective. But uh, I think uh, with an electric vehicle strategy, for example, a, a command and control approach, which says that by X state you shall do X or Y, um, is... Um, something that we are less likely to come at and and I think frankly the community is less likely to support. So so for me in an area like electric vehicles, um, what is the role the federal government can play? And the states are already doing a lot, so it's got to be a partnership. Um, we are already funding um, projects through ARENA. Uh, mm, fast charging stations. Charging stations. And, so, yeah. so the work is already 
happening. But um, but partly it's it's just going to be a force of of of, uh, of the market in the sense that the cost of vehicles will come down. There isn't really a, a, an affordable electric vehicle yeah, on the market agreed. in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Um, Will that be fast enough? Possibly not. So I think there is a case, for example, for the states to look at financial incentives through registration fees, even through toll fees. And uh, I think in my own electorate, one of the big issues that state government's facing is uh, um, debates about pollution from new new uh, tunnels, road tunnel projects, because that debate goes away. We've got electric vehicles because there are no emissions. So, uh, so for example, do you offer um, some type of toll rebate if you're actually using uh, a, one of those tunnel projects in, a, in an electric vehicle and not producing any emissions. Um, but uh, but obviously a key factor in Australia which has hindered electric vehicles is the psychological fear that we have. Um, we all like to dream that we travel vast distances every weekend. Most of us don't. But, but we have this psychological aversion because we are worried that we're going to be uh, halfway across the Nullarbor mm. and find mm. that mm. the, the battery, the battery runs, runs out. out. Yeah. So I think the charging network is actually going to be really crucial. For but that. in terms of the the sort of the basic disposition, so it, it would be carrots rather than sticks. So it was the issue with Labor's policy. I mean, well, let's set aside, you know, just crude politics and let's just talk about what was wrong with that proposal. Was your objection that there were vehicle standards embedded in that or emission standards embedded in that, that it should all be incentives, it should all be rewarding the consumer for doing the right thing I think that's rather the, than regulation? I think that's a starting point, particularly in the early days. And I think once you've got acceptance within the community, then you might look at measures down the track. But mm-hmm. the first instance is carrying the community with you. And, uh, and I think importantly to that, you are not telling someone what type of car they should have. Mm-hmm. You are uh, explaining why there might be a better option and you're making it um, practically and financially attractive for them to consider that option. Okay. Now... Um... And I think once you get that penetration, it is it is getting the penetration to a point where I think it becomes the norm. Well, they, they, and tipping, people see the benefits. Yeah, it, well, a tipping point happens in the market yeah. and then... But I agree, affordability is a big issue. And I think once you get to the price where there is um, affordable... And, and look, the... the Global car market um, is heading only in one direction, and the amount that's being invested by the big car manufacturers is just extraordinary. and uh, And we will get cheaper cheaper vehicles on the market. And once you've got parity in terms of purchase price, um, your running costs are going to be lower, um, your fuel costs are going to be lower. Uh, so, so it's going to make a lot of sense. But how do you win these? Uh, I, I want to get to coal power because I know you have views about that. Mm. I want to get to that in a sec, but. Um, how do you win these arguments internally? Well, I think I think it is easier because uh, we're not. No one's arguing that we should revisit whether we have a carbon price or an ETS. Uh, these are um, things that can be done where we're not uh, telling people that they have to do something. We're providing them an incentive to do it themselves. Um, this is effectively uh, uh, using government funding to create leverage and to provide in, uh, a catalyst funding is the way I describe it for certain things to happen until um, pricing and the markets can take over once you have uh, something that's established in the in the field. Um, so I think that within those parameters, it is a lot easier. Um, but I don't um, shy away from the fact that uh, saying that we're going to have a shiny new target is, is not going to be... Um, a challenge. Because you want change to happen. You're not alone. Uh, it's very striking to me that a number of you have come back uh, into this parliamentary year very focused on this and not inclined to hush your voices. Mm. So you want the change to happen. 
But uh, that 2050, the obvious pivot point of 2050, which will en enable a conversation, mm. or well, uh, you will have to have a conversation about a target. Yeah. What do you do in order to persuade? But let me, let me be clear on that, though, because I'm not saying let's adopt the 2050 target. I'm saying that let's do the due diligence. Yeah. I think that that uh, is something that we should be looking very seriously at because it makes sense. It makes sense in terms of our Paris Agreement targets. It makes sense with what the states are doing and so many other nations are doing. But uh, we do have to have an understanding about how you get there. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's it, why I say do the due diligence before yeah. signing on the document. No, no, line. no, you're very clear about that. I mean, obviously it's something you would like to see adopted but not in a vacuum. You've got to actually understand how you do it, what the costs are, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. But it, it is like how do, you, how do you persuade George Christensen this is a good idea? And, um, I mean, I'm not personalising that. I mean, yeah, like substitute yeah. anybody, right? George just popped into my head. As he does. Well, I think that the key to it is actually explaining to him and his community how, uh, firstly, the transition is not going to be a disaster for them, but secondly, not only is it not going to be a disaster, uh, but there's actually going to be new opportunities that arise uh, for a community like his and across Australia. Uh, so so we have to try and take people on that journey. Now, will you always succeed? Uh, probably not 100%, but, mm. but you've got to give it a go. Mm. Well, obviously, yeah, well, and Christensen brings us to coal and Collinsville and et cetera. Now, should taxpayers fund, underwrite new coal plants? I don't think we should fund the construction of, of new coal-fired power plants um, for two reasons. Firstly, my view is, is that government should be should not be in the business of, of doing something where the market's not prepared to do it itself and the market makes a, a reasonable assessment, not always, but in most cases mm -hmm. about what in the long term is going to be viable. So so it's a very liberal philosophical objection to that. Uh, I should say that occasionally it's thrown back to me, well, how do you justify investing so much in Sony Mountains Hydro or, yep. or, or renewable energy full stop? Yeah, or subsidies for mining. Uh, and, um, uh, and I would say that, for example, in relation to Snowy, the difference is, is that that is a government-owned asset. It is our asset and we are making uh, effectively a commercial investment in its upgrade as the owner. Uh, but more broadly, my view is, and we see this across so many areas of government policy, the government acts as a catalyst agent, um, be it export market development grants, be it the work, um, the funding that we give uh, to science or innovation. It's basically making sure that we can get people off the ground before they have to survive on their own two mm. feet. Mm. And... Um, and I don't think you could say that the coal fire power station sector falls into that category. <laughs> falls into that category. No, but then the second thing is, is obviously how does it fit in within within um, within a transition to a carbon neutral economy? Mm. Yeah. Well, also there's not only the issue of underwriting. There is an issue that uh, played out in parliamentary dispatches through the week, uh, which is uh, the issue of indemnifying any new plant against a future change in carbon policy. Now, I spoke to Trevison Baker, who is a player in the energy industry in Australia. I'm sure you've come across him anyway. He's a fun guy. Um, uh, he, uh, he said to me, and I wrote a, a piece, uh, he said basically of Collinsville, um, there is no way that Collinsville will ever be constructed unless the Commonwealth indemnifies that project against future carbon risk. Like just not going to happen, won't be bankable without an indemnity, right, which puts taxpayers on the hook for several billions of dollars. Um, so first thing, interestingly too, he's obviously, uh, he's in uh, Trevor, Trevor St. Baker's business, well, he has mixed businesses, but he's into sweating 
existing coal assets, so he's a coal guy, let's say, he's a coal guy, of Collinsville, he said, I actually can't see the business case for Collinsville. Who's the customer? Who's the offtake? You know, so anyways, two... uh, Two issues there. I um, just discovered the skeleton in yeah. your studio. I just <laughs> we, turned around a coffin. Yes. It was a skeleton po- face. Po- me, portrait is discovered. Yeah, yeah I might, I'll put a picture. I'll put a picture up on social media so you could you could see what he's looking at. Poor man's terrible. Anyway, so um, so you don't think obviously it's good for for governments to uh, approach coal plants as if it's some new technology that you have to pull through, right? So there's not a case for public support. What about indemnities? Like that's a whole other rodeo. Um, look, it's not an issue that I've given a huge amount of thought to. I mean, we have an underwriting scheme that arose from the ACCC uh, report, which is meant to be technology neutral, and we're looking at 12 projects. So, But the underwriting in that context is, uh, and, and that's obviously about firming, um, uh, it's really about providing the firm power to support yeah. renewables. Yeah. Uh, and, and essentially that is a baseline because of the way that the um, market operates in terms of um, generally you can only... Uh, get get uh, private commercial backing uh, if you have contracts that go for the extent of, of the investment period. Yeah. Um, but in reality, you can only get energy contracts for five years. So it fills the valley of death in energy. And and that program is uh, is um, uh, is is meant to be uh, technology neutral. Yes. Um, and um, there so, is well, there is once and Baker coal project that's yeah, on the short um, list, but, but it's, it's, it's mainly it's mainly renewables. It's mainly hydro and yeah, other and things. pumped hydro and gas, I imagine as well. So, uh, so there is some potential for some form of underwriting under that. But, but I think more broadly, and and, and I stress, I haven't really turned my mind to this at great length. But I think if you are talking about underwriting the consequences of, of changing policy in relation to getting our emissions down across the whole energy sector, then that is a fairly massive commitment well, on the part of the Commonwealth. Well, it's a brain explosion. Like, honestly, it's quite like the, the amount of uh, tax, and let's let's be clear as uh, who is actually picking up the, ta- the tab, it's the taxpayer. Mm. It's not the government. It's, you know, it's it's the taxpayer. I mean, that's that's another issue that you, that has to be given serious consideration because at one level, you know, supporting coal regionally because it's, uh, you know, politically savvy or whatever to do that creates a long-term fiscal consequence. Well, that's highly problematic, isn't it? Uh, that would be my gut reaction, but mm. not definitive reaction. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for No, no, no. I, no I, I, I see what you did there. Um, uh, let's finish with this. Zali Stegall, obviously, who is now your sort of next-door neighbour in Warringah. Mm. Is my next-door neighbour. Yeah, she is, actually. Not yeah. residentially. No, but no, electoral, but electorally. Yeah. yeah, she is. She totally is. Anyway, um, she has obviously brought forward mm. a, uh, a bill uh, which has been well received. You know, BCA's backed it. Um, you know, b- business types who are into climate action, like Mike Cannon Brooks, mm-hmm. have backed it. You know, think it's an elegant compromise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm, what What do you think? Uh, look, I've, I've had a quick flick through it this week. So the bill itself was released on Monday, I think, and. Uh, uh, I'm probably upsetting your podcasting broadcasting no, no, timing, no, but, no, but yes, we're four yeah. days four days after its its release. So, um, so I can't say I've had an in depth look at it. Um, I would, I suppose, in terms of timing, I think that the government should be given the opportunity to do that due diligence process on the 2050 target before uh, the parliament's expected to sign up to it. Um, the um, so I've 
spoken to Zali and I said I'm open to having a conversation about it uh, when we come back in a couple of weeks' time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, um, it is watch this space on, on that front. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but as you know, the government determines whether private members' bills No, come debated. on or not. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so well, you want to have a discussion. Why? Um, as a matter of respect for Zali, and she's she said she'd like to have a chat about it. And to be honest, there are some initial reactions that I have that I actually would want to talk to her about even before raising them publicly because they might be completely unfair and unfounded. Are you worried about uh, independent or a target-setting process independent of government? Uh, I would say that as a general principle, I always hold the view that you shouldn't curtail mm. the elected government to too great a degree. Mm. Okay. Any other issues apart from that? Let me uh, work through the village. You're being artfully vague. Um, do you think <laughs> that there is any? I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's a question about whether or not that bill will ever be brought on, um, and that's just a, a question of numbers and support. Um, could you see uh, any of uh, any of your colleagues being interested to vote for that bill in the event it came on? You mean crossing the floor? Um, well, it, it, she's asked for a conscience vote. Yeah. Look, I, I, to you be honest, I don't think, think there'll a, be a conscience vote. It's not uh, going to be allowed. No. I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, conscience votes are rarely given, as you as yes. you know. I mean, technically, uh, Liberal members have the right to cross the floor on 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 policy issues, not procedural issues. Yep. It's important to stress, which is the first hurdle. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but. Uh, so I, so I don't think it'll be a conscience vote. Um, but for me, the important thing is is what is the goal now? Gazali's um, bill really does two things. It sets the 2050 target um, and then it looks at the bureaucratic the structure yeah. behind it, not yeah. to actually deliver particular outcomes but effectively to be doing the reporting and providing advice to government. So there are two components. It's the, it's the, um, the role of, of, of advice and it's the target. Um, it... I, Zali's bill may not be the only way to achieve those goals. No, well, you, you're saying, I think, uh, carefully that you would like the op- the opportunity for the government to reach a more ambitious climate position without necessarily the Stegall bill being the vehicle to do that. Well, for yeah? example, I think I, I see in emails to me that it might be put up on in in March. Uh, I think it's too early for the government, for that matter, and for us as individuals, for example, to to expect to have reached a final judgment about 2050 targets by March. Mm-hmm. But you're talking. Despite to... my favourable disposition. Sure, but you're talking, which is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm open to talking to, um, well, there are some boundaries, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, no, look, if, if someone like Zali presents a bill like that, um, I, I think we have to treat the crossbench with respect. I've, I've worked with Rebecca Sharkey on a bill in relation to the aged care sector last mm-hmm. year. I remember um, that. So. Mm. Uh, so it is important. Oh, well, watch this space, people. Yeah. Trent, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. And thank you, uh, as always, for listening, everybody. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thank you, as ever, to Miles Martignoni, the executive producer of this show. Uh, we'll be back with you real soon. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.